Father, thank you again for an opportunity just to kind of quiet our minds and uh, think about you. So please help us to tune in to things of real importance now. Bring us close to you and restore our trust and relationship with you. Amen. Now, someone asked a question last time, and um, I'm going to see if he's here. Don't see him. But anyway, I thought, hey, it's a good, good question, so we'll talk about it a little bit. Uh, we went over the ancestry of Jesus. And when we get to Luke, we'll talk about the dramatic differences between Matthew and Luke and, and what that might mean. Remember how Matthew so nicely here summarizes these here? There were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, 14 uh, from then to the birth of the Messiah. And um, so, wow, that's pretty incredible. But when we look at the period of time here from David to the exile in Babylon, and I underline these names for a reason, but anyway, go back to the Old Testament here. And what we see is that actually between Jehoram and Isaiah, there are three additional names there in Chronicles. So it really isn't 14, 14, 14, as uh, Matthew would, would lead us to believe. Now, there are a couple of explanations for that. Um, one is that there are several uh, genealogies in the Old Testament where the less important people will just be left out. And so someone will be the father of someone. And well, really, there were a couple people in between. Um, but anyway, this is, uh, this is troubling to some. And um, there are a number of other issues that come up here related to inspiration. Not to unsettle things, but since uh, this is uh, something that can really bother some individuals, if, a certain, if we have a certain view of inspiration, I think it's worthwhile to bring it up and discuss it a little bit. Matthew's use of the Old Testament is very, very interesting. For example, you remember how Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt, and Matthew would say this, this was done to make true what the Lord had said through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. All right, so we go to find out here, where is this? We go to the book of Hosea, and there it is. The Lord says, when Israel was a child, I loved him and called him out of Egypt as my son. Don't stop reading. But the more I called to him, the more he turned away from me. My people sacrificed to Baal. They burned incense to idols. Um, you can see where perhaps for a Jew, this might not be a very convincing text to prove that uh, anything about Jesus being the Messiah. Well, we have more convincing evidence than this, but again, Matthew's use of the Old Testament here, very interesting on a number of occasions. Here are words of Jesus. He's giving this speech and he would say, as a result, the punishment for the murder of all innocent people will fall on you. From the murder of innocent Abel to the murder of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, a well-known story. So we turn back to the Old Testament to read about this story. And it turns out that it's the wrong person here. It's actually Jehoiada, not uh, Berechiah. So here we have uh, kind of a challenge. Did uh, Jesus make a mistake? And I wouldn't like that interpretation. So uh, how do we understand here, uh, clearly referring to the same incident, that we've got the wrong um, father of Zechariah that is listed? Well, again, a number of um, interpretations raised. The one that I personally like, and the opinion of many scholars, is you know, they didn't have 20 Bibles in one home back at that time. They had rare scrolls in uh, synagogues. And so Matthew here, writing much later, recalling these words of Jesus, well, he got the wrong father of Zechariah. Um, but would this entirely destroy our view of inspiration if this were the case? Um, let's, let's look at maybe a little more evidence here. 
Matthew would say this, Then what the prophet Jeremiah had said came true. They took the 30 silver coins, the amount the people of Israel had agreed to pay him, and used the money to buy the potter's field. Now this one is really incredible because it fits so well from the Old Testament. And the problem here is uh, this is not uh, from the book of Jeremiah. Uh, this is taken from Zechariah 11.13. So there are lots of Zacharias in the Old Testament. And it just seems like here we have a little uh, mistake quoted from the wrong book. What do we do with things like this? Well, we're going to talk about the uh, Beatitudes here in Matthew 5. And so we read this in Matthew 5, and it's happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. Okay, that's beautiful. Now, Beatitudes are in Luke as well. And in Luke, it's happy are you poor. So, which is it? Or did Jesus maybe say the same thing using different words on different occasions? Um... In Matthew 8, we have this incredible story. Remember, Jesus quiets a storm. And then immediately after, Jesus came to the territory of Gadara or Gerasa on the other side of the lake, and he was met by two men who came out of the burial caves there. These men had demons in them and were so fierce that no one dared travel that road. Okay, now we read the same account here in Mark. Again, Jesus calms a storm. Very next story, Jesus and his disciples sailed on over to the territory of Gerasa, which is across the lake from Galilee. Same thing. And as Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a man from the town who had demons in him. And uh, so was it one man or, or two men? Uh, is it important? We skip ahead to Matthew 20, where Jesus speaks the third time about his death. Very next story. Then the wife of Zebedee came to Jesus with her two sons, were James and John, bowed before him and asked him for a favor. And remember, her favor was, can my sons be first in your kingdom? Can they sit at your right side? Okay, let's read the same account in Mark. Again, Jesus speaks the third time about his death. And this time, James and John. Zebedee came to Jesus and asked again the same thing. So was it the mother or was it James and John? And just follow along here in the same uh, chronology. So what we said is Jesus speaks a third time about his death. We have that in Matthew and Mark. Next story, the request to sit at the right hand. In Matthew, the mother of James and John requested. In Mark, James and John themselves request it. And the end of either account of this, where the request is made to sit at Jesus' right hand, both in Matthew and Mark, concludes with virtually the same words like the Son of Man who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life to redeem many people. That's Matthew. And in Mark, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, he came to serve. Okay, wonderful. This, this all ties together. Now, the next verse here in Matthew is this. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, a large crowd was following. Two blind men who were sitting by the road heard that Jesus was passing by, so they began to shout, Son of David, have mercy on us, sir. The crowd scolded them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on us, sir. Okay, so it's same chronology here in Matthew that it is in Mark, but now after saying, I came to, not to be served, but to serve, the next verse is, they came to Jericho, and as Jesus was leaving, remember that's the same as in Matthew, they're leaving Jericho, with his disciples and a large crowd, now a single person, a blind beggar who has a name, Bartimaeus, and the rest of it is so similar, except now it's one person. Now, is this, uh, does this destroy our faith when we, when we 
stumble across these things, and there are lots and lots of them. And the question really becomes here about inspiration. Um, and I like the, the phrase here, inspired pen or inspired men. In other words, uh, is the Bible dictated by God? Um, or how does inspiration work? I think this is one of the biggest subjects in Christianity today. A certain view of inspiration, we can justify dashing babies against the rocks. Uh, we can justify starting a war, bombing an abortion clinic, just about anything under the sun with a certain view of inspiration. How were the people who wrote the Bible inspired? Of course, famous verse, all scripture is inspired by God. But what does that mean? Words of Paul here in 1 Corinthians, where he said, I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. No one can say then that you were baptized as my disciples. Oh, yes. I also baptized Stephanus and his family, but I can't remember whether I baptized anyone else. Now, did the Holy Spirit of truth dictate these words to Paul? Uh, was the Holy Spirit of truth not uh, quite clear on how many people that Paul had baptized um, in that area? And obviously, we wouldn't take that position. No, Paul is writing here. Paul can't remember how many people he baptized. Um, this, this would clearly not be uh, something that's dictated by the Holy Spirit. When we get into, uh, when we start on the writings of Paul, uh, we'll open that by quoting the words of Peter, who said, you know what, some of Paul's writings are difficult, hard to understand. Um, again, do we imagine some of these things being uh, uh, dictated by the Holy Spirit? How about this other passage here in 1 Corinthians, where Paul would say, I don't know of anything else the Lord said about marriage. All I can do is give my own advice. Now, concerning what you wrote about unmarried people, I do not have a command from the Lord, but I give my opinion as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is worthy of trust. And he goes on to give his opinion. And he concludes by saying, that is my opinion, and I think that I too have God's spirit. Now, I mean, wouldn't we value Paul's opinion uh, greatly? But, but he goes out of his way to say here, you know, I don't, don't have a word from the Lord on this, but I'm going to give you my opinion. And haven't some prophets gotten in trouble by giving their opinion uh, on occasion? So um, I think for, for those of you here who may be Seventh-day Adventists, and this is a Seventh-day Adventist institution, um, Seventh-day Adventists, I think, have kind of a, perhaps a unique, unique perspective on inspiration. These are the words of the most influential Adventist who said this, There is not always perfect order or apparent unity in the scriptures. The miracles of Christ are not given in exact order, but are given just as the circumstances occurred, which called for this divine revealing of the power of Christ. The Bible is not given to us in grand superhuman language. Jesus, in order to reach man where he is, took humanity. The Bible must be given in the language of men, and everything that is human is imperfect. The Bible is written by inspired men, but it is not God's mode of thought and expression. It is that of humanity. God as a writer is not represented. Men will often say such an expression is not like God, that God has not put himself in words, in logic, in rhetoric, on trial in the Bible. The writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not his pen. And that's the point. Inspiration works on the mind. And the words flow from that, from the pen onto the page, but God was not in the pen or specifically dictating the words that we have recorded in the Bible. And another one, and this, this first sentence is rather shocking, it is not the words of the Bible that are inspired. I mean, how about that? It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were inspired. 
Inspiration acts not on the man's words or his expressions, but on the man himself, who under the influence of the Holy Ghost is imbued with thoughts. But the words receive the impress of the individual mind. The divine mind is diffused. The divine mind and will is combined with the human mind and will. Thus, the utterances of the man are the word of God. Um, so this, this concept of uh, thought inspiration as opposed to the Bible being uh, dictated. And I think um, that holds together much better um, if we consider some of this uh, evidence in the Bible. And you know, just practically, you will experience this as physicians. Um, as neurologists, we're frequently taking a history of an event like the patient had a spell where they passed out. And we're trying to decide, was it a seizure? Um, what happened? And so what you do is you have to talk with everyone who witnessed the event. And frequently that means you talk with the patient who doesn't remember much, and then you call someone who witnessed it, you call a neighbor who witnessed it, you call a relative who witnessed it. And uh, every single time you do that, it's always remarkable how different the story is from the people who are right there watching it. Uh, one person will say, it, well, it happened in the kitchen. And the other person will say it happened in the living room. Well, how could you not? I mean, it was either kitchen or living room. You were there. Um, one person will say, well, it's a seizure. It lasted about 10 minutes. And the other person will say, uh, it lasted about 30 seconds, maybe a minute, something like that. And you guys were both there, right? Um, you know, the differing accounts. Um, and attorneys will tell you this, that um, when there's a car accident or something like that, and you've got 10 witnesses, the car's behind. Uh, in one case, uh, I saw there was an ambulance driver off duty, witnessed the accident, uh, and a policeman was right there. I mean, the story was so conflicting between all of these uh, different accounts. But it kind of gives a ring of uh, believability and credibility. Uh, we actually get uh, suspicious. One case I saw the, the story was just word for word in all of the different accounts. And this just did not add up. And uh, this was unbelievable. I walked outside the patient's door and I'm actually standing there writing in the chart. And I heard the patient say, we've got to believe, got, got to get Dr. Cole to believe for this lawsuit uh, that we're involved in. And so the, it was word for word verbatim in all of the different stories. And so some of these differences I think give the Bible a ring of credibility that these people were actually there and remember some things just a little bit uh, differently as opposed to uh, destroying um, the credibility of the Bible. And, and actually, is there something to admire in God? I mean, let's say that uh, uh, he's watching Paul dictate to a scribe or Paul is writing, I can't remember how many I baptized. Uh, would we rather that God would dispatch an angel, get down there right away, control the pen, uh, improve his memory? I mean, I think God allows Paul the freedom here to be forgetful rather than um, jumping in and correcting things in that way. So again, two more quotes that I think, what is the purpose of the Bible? In the Bible, we have in clear lines the revelation of God's character, of his dealings with men and the great work of redemption. And here it just said very clearly, the Bible is the book that unfolds the character of God. That's the purpose of the Bible. Do we got, find God to be trustworthy? Is it a God that you would like to come close to or to come further away from? And I think the evidence of the Bible as a whole, Jesus Christ is the front and center evidence of who God is, we, the Bible achieves in this sense. It reveals God to be trustworthy, vindicates his character. And uh, I will say the Bible is, in my opinion, absolutely inspired. Um, but we need to understand exactly what that means. 
Jesus would say, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. Message Bible says, but you miss the forest for the trees. These are the scriptures that speak of me. When we, when we read the Bible, um, it all has to focus on Jesus and eventually what is God like? That's the ultimate question. So uh, we come now to Matthew 5. And uh, not to belabor the point here, but in Matthew 5, Jesus goes up a hill to give this sermon. We read the same account in Luke. He went down from a hill with his disciples and uh, gave the sermon. Uh, it's interesting, this uh, Adventist writer that I quoted describes that he went up a hill and then went down to a level place and gave the sermon. So maybe we can incorporate both of these. <laughs> so, yeah, and frequently what we think is a discrepancy turns out to have a beautiful meaning. Um, in the Old Testament, uh, in, in one place, it's described as Satan tempted David to give the sentence, census. And in another place, same story, God tempted David to give a census. Um, there are resolutions to some of these uh, difficult questions that sometimes work out in God's favor. So I want you to really concentrate on the words here. These are very meaty. This is Jesus' first sermon. And you imagine the people in anticipation. Here, we're going to find out, is this guy the Messiah? If you're Jesus, what would you plan to say to try to convince people? And um, just imagine the reaction to this uh, sermon. Here's his, his first words. Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. And you're a Pharisee, and here are the first words. Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Happy are those who mourn. God will comfort them. Happy are those who are humble. They will receive what God has promised. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Happy are those who are merciful to others. God will be merciful to them. Happy are the pure in heart. They will see God. Happy are those who work for peace. God will call them his children. And finally, happy are those who are persecuted because they do what God requires. The kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Happy are you when people insult you and persecute you and tell all kinds of evil lies against you because you are my followers. Okay, now how did this uh, settle in, uh, this message? Well, let's just... Uh, condensed down to the essence of what Jesus said. Happy are those who, and here's the list. First of all, those who know they are spiritually poor. Now, wouldn't we have to say, I mean, if we just put together everything we know about Jesus' interaction with these Pharisees, uh, were they aware that they were spiritually poor? No, in their mind, they were spiritually rich, right? They, they had it down. They were quite confident in their understanding. This would not have... Um, settled very well for them. Happy are those who know they are spiritually poor. And what I see in this is a progression. Because what is it, I mean, if you're going to accept a new message, perhaps about God, a new understanding, um, don't you have to be willing to listen and to at least start with, wow, I thought I knew something, I guess I didn't. I'm going to have to look at this in a new way. So the first step is really to realize, you know what, I'm actually quite spiritually poor. And what happens when you recognize that you're actually quite spiritually poor? Well, remember when Ezra came back out of captivity and they read the Bible, and what did the people do? It had to be translated to them. When they understood, what did they do? They cried. I mean, my goodness, they had 70 years in captivity. They didn't 
know anything about the Bible. It's read to them. They understand it. And the first response, I think, is, my goodness, we are spiritually poor. We had no idea. What's the first thing they do? They burst into tears. They cry. They realize how far away from God they actually are, how far away from what God actually requires. And is there not in that a uh, humility that comes if you really internalize that, uh, how far from the ideal you are? Uh, humility comes with that. And then naturally, I think if it's internalized in the right way, out of this there is a desire, a thirst for righteousness, for something better. And then the last four here are all, now we've internalized this and there's an outward action. So eventually, merciful to others, treating others with kindness, pure in heart. The law of love is written on the heart. We work for peace. And then the highest in God's kingdom is to be persecuted. Um, God's kingdom is really an upside down kingdom from what we normally think, where power, pride, I mean, this is wealth, this is at the top. And in God's kingdom, what is it? The child, the least, the most humble. Uh, those are the people that are at the top in God's kingdom. And this ends here with persecution. So I think, again, the people wanting a Messiah that would be powerful, that would conquer the Romans, uh, that would just come in and reign in a great kingdom, Israel, that would rule the world, uh, this was very offensive. Who recognized that they were spiritually poor? It was fishermen, prostitutes, tax collectors. Uh, these were the people that received the message of Jesus. And if we just we go through here, merciful to others. Um, next time we'll read some of these stories about how you know a man who can't move his arm and Jesus says, well, is it okay to heal someone on the Sabbath? They can't answer the question. No, it's actually not okay to do good things like that on the Sabbath. Um, Jesus was continually saying, I desire mercy, kindness, not sacrifice. So this would just ring as foreign to be merciful to others, pure in heart, to work for peace. No, we're supposed to conquer our national enemies. That's what we wanted in Jesus. And so this was uh, very poorly received. I like this here on the, the persecution. Skipping forward to Acts, as the apostles left the council, they were happy because God had considered them worthy to suffer disgrace for the sake of Christ. So to actually be um, happy here in persecution, well, that's the top of the line in God's kingdom, it would seem. So after saying all of this, and before Jesus gets interrupted, after describing the ideal, then he would say, okay, now, if this takes place, you are like light for the whole world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. Instead, it's put on a lampstand where it gives light for everyone in the house. In the same way, your light must shine before people so that they will see the good things you do and praise your Father in heaven. My own summary is that God would come as the great light of the world, revealing the truth about God's character. And what happens? I mean, when, naturally, when the truth about God is revealed and his character um, naturally like a mirror you come back and reveal something about yourself about our own character is revealed so uh, we recognize that spiritual poverty we mourn our own selfish character we surrender self there's humility involved in this and out of that there's a thirst for a new heart a right spirit and then eventually love for others christ-like character purity in heart and a desire to spread the good news about god and ultimately ends up here at persecution again and I think, uh, in a sense, here, again, happy? No, they were not happy to receive this kind of a message. 
But notice how Jesus then, after saying this, has to jump in and say, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Don't suppose that I came to do away with the law and the prophets. Because didn't this sound to them like he was just doing away with everything that they deemed to be most important? Hold on, don't think I came to do away with the law and the prophets. I did not come to do away with them, but to give them their full meaning. And this is really well translated here. I understand to fulfill them, you know, just like when you fulfill a requirement, it's to fill it full, it's to complete it. Jesus came to fill the Old Testament full with meaning. He came to fulfill it. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So he's saying, you know what, I'm not doing away with all that stuff. I just came to explain it to you. I came to fill it full with additional meaning. And then he would tell them, I tell you then that you will be able to uh, to enter the kingdom of heaven only if you are more faithful than the teachers of the law and the Pharisees in doing what God requires. So again, the Pharisees are sitting here thinking he's doing away with everything. He's doing away with the law. And then he would say, hold on, not one bit is done away with. And in fact, you all have to be doing a whole lot better than the Pharisees if you're going to enter the kingdom. Um, I mean, was Jesus radical or what? I mean, this just in a few words, he has offended just about everyone there. And then he would say, you're familiar with the command to the ancients, do not murder. And I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. Um, again, for the religious leaders in this time, maybe just looking at the Ten Commandments and saying, well, I didn't murder anyone today. I've done a pretty good job. And then Jesus would say, if you even hate someone, you've broken that commandment. And then you've heard it was said, do not commit adultery. Again, for just looking at the Ten Commandments on a wall, I didn't commit adultery today. It's been a good day. And Jesus would say, but now I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman and wants to possess her is guilty of committing adultery with her in his heart. Um, can you see the anger and agitation that might be, again, growing up here in the, in, inside uh, uh, someone uh, who feels like they're in pretty good shape? It was also said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. That's right from the Old Testament. But now I tell you, if a man divorces his wife for any cause other than unfaithfulness, then he is guilty of making her commit adultery if she marries again. And the man who marries her commits adultery also. And we know just from several chapters later on in Matthew that they thought they had Jesus now because he would say, yeah, I acknowledge that verse in the Old Testament, but now I'm telling you something different. It's going against the law, right? So... The Pharisees came along later, tried to trap him with a question. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? And they think they're on firm ground here because they've got the Old Testament. Yes, you can divorce your wife for any reason. Um, how's Jesus going to get out of this? He just said, don't divorce. And Jesus' response, haven't you read the scriptures? They record that from the beginning, God made them male and female. And he said, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. Then why did Moses say the law in the law that a man could give his wife a written notice of divorce and send her away, they asked. Notice what Jesus did was he went all the way back to the beginning and said, in the beginning, it was not this way. And they keep pushing and they say, well, we've got it written down in the Old Testament. And his response here, this is so critically important to our understanding of so many things in the Old Testament. Jesus replied, Moses permitted divorce only as a concession to your hard hearts. 
but it was not what God had originally intended. And I would say a good portion of the Old Testament is a concession to our hard hearts. I mean, we needed all kinds of rules back in that time that was not the ideal. I mean, uh, you know, a parent of children, you, you recognize you're giving out all these rules that are far, far away from the ideal. All right? But, uh, and God has spiritually immature people, so we have all of these rules that are necessary, but it's not the ideal. And Jesus is saying here, hey, let's, let's move closer to the ideal. And so he's breaking down all of these things that they hold as precious from the Old Testament, and he's saying, hey, grow up a little bit. Here's another one. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's in the Old Testament. But now I tell you, do not take revenge on someone who wrongs you. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, let him slap your left cheek too. Now, how do we apply this to ourselves today? Notice Jesus is saying there's a new way that I want you to live. And if someone takes you to court to sue you for your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if one of the occupation troops forces you to carry his pack one mile, carry it two miles. Now this, um, I mean, the Romans are their national enemy. And Jesus is telling them, carry the pack an extra mile. I mean, is there anything possibly more offensive that could be said? I mean, again, try to apply this to us. Who's our national enemy? How do we carry out uh, the words of Jesus here? When someone asks you for something, give it to him. When someone wants to borrow something, lend it to him. So again, um, what do we do? I think as Christians, I mean, if we're disciples of Christ, ultimately, uh, this is our creed. We do what Jesus Christ did and try to apply this to our daily life. That's, uh, it's quite a challenge. It's not certainly what comes natural to us. We're much more inclined to follow the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth rule. Here's another one. You've heard that it was said, love your friends, hate your enemies. But now, I tell you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you so that you may become the children of your Father in heaven. What's the criteria for becoming a child of your Father in heaven? Love your enemies, pray for them. For he makes his sun to shine on bad and good people alike and gives rain to those who do good and to those who do evil. Why should God reward you if you love only the people who love you? Even the tax collectors do that. And if you speak only to your friends, have you done anything out of the ordinary? Even the pagans do that. You must be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. And um, we get hung, hung up on these words here. I mean, is there anything more intimidating? We must be perfect, just like um, our Father in heaven. Uh, I like the message translation here. It, really, this is be more like God. Be mature. Grow up. And so it's very expanded here in the Message Bible, but Jesus is here quoted as saying, in a word, what I'm saying is, grow up, your kingdom subjects. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity. Live generously and graciously toward others the way God lives toward you. And I think that really gets uh, to the essence of uh, what Jesus is saying here. He's trying to move them basically from having the law posted on a wall somewhere, and we go through a checklist, and he's trying to move that law and write it on the heart. Continuing on, make certain you do not perform your religious duties in public so that people will see what you do. So when you give something to a needy person, do not make a big show of it as the hypocrites do in the houses of worship and on the streets. They do it so that people will praise them. I assure you, they have already been paid in full. But when you help a needy person, do it in such a way that even your closest friend will not know about it. Then it will be a private matter. I mean, isn't that night and day from 
just remember Jesus was in the temple and the people would come by and drop in money, make sure that it would make a loud sound so they get a lot of attention. Uh, no, that's not what the kingdom of God is like. And so when Jesus was finished saying these things, the crowd was amazed at the way he talked. He wasn't like the teachers of the law. Instead, he taught with authority. Uh, and isn't that true? I mean, so radically different from what they were expecting. So I think, in essence, Jesus would describe how the judgment works. And I think what we just witnessed was a judgment scene. This is how the judgment works. The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. Those who do evil things hate the light and will not come to the light because they do not want their evil deeds to be shown up. And so Jesus came, I mean, with this incredibly I mean, bright message, if we want to talk about it in terms of light, and what do you do? Well, do you harden yourself and reject a message like that? Or do you recognize, my goodness, I am nothing at all like God. I'm actually spiritually uh, extremely poor. Well, that's a good place to start. And, and the thing about this paradigm, it's not like we reach here and we're finished. I mean, we are daily, I think, starting at step one. And daily, hopefully, uh, you know, recognizing our own, uh, what God is like, what we are like, humility. So we're, I think, should continually be going through this, this whole paradigm. But now, Jesus, I mean, would seem to make the law much more difficult than it had been. So what do we do with a verse like this? For Christ has brought the law to an end. So stealing, adultery, it's all fine now. He's brought the law to an end. So that everyone who believes is put right with God. What does it mean that Christ is the end of the law? Um, well, let's look at this in a few other translations here. Let's maybe go back a verse. Romans 10.3. For they, the Pharisees, don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. And isn't that what they were trying to do? They were trying to get right with God by keeping a list. And I love how Phillips translates verse 4. For Christ means the end of the struggle for righteousness by the law for everyone who believes in him. Christ is the end of trying to get right with God by keeping a list. What does that mean? Well, um, I think it's helpful just to see what was done in that day. You may have heard of the Mishnah, which is an extensive book that just listed uh, hundreds, thousands of rules to help the Jews obey. For example, there were 39 classes of unlawful work on Sabbath, 39 classes, and each one of those was broken down very extensively. And just to take one example, you may have heard this told before, but for example, putting out a fire was illegal on the Sabbath, as was carrying things for your home. And so that's stated as a rule, but now we have a problem. What if your house is burning down? And um, here's the rule. You can't put out a fire and you can't carry things from your home. So the Mishnah would go into an extensive list of here's what you're allowed to do if your house is burning down. So one could carry food out of the house, but only enough to get each member of the family through the rest of the Sabbath. And this is if it's burning down on the Sabbath. One could not carry clothes out of the house, but one could wear as many clothes as one could get on. Again, this is not to, to make fun, but uh, these people are sincerely trying not to work on the Sabbath. And so they are making it as thorough as possible to try to keep this rule. Now, putting the fire out was not allowed, but if a Gentile volunteered 
a good Jew could allow the Gentile to put it out. Okay, but one could not ask a Gentile for such a favor. So your house is burning down, down, you can't put it out. If a Gentile is standing next to you, you're not allowed to ask him, could you please you know, put the fire out? But if he wants to do it of his own volition, then he's allowed to. Um, this is really an extreme case. I mean, talk about trying to get right with God by keeping the law. Um, very extensive. Christ came. I think one reason he came at this point in human history was to completely destroy uh, that way of thinking. And how about this? In Isaiah 58, keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't pursue your own interests on that day, but enjoy the Sabbath. So maybe you've worked very hard to keep the Sabbath. And at the end of the day, working very hard not to work, uh, you would have to say, did I enjoy the Sabbath? If you didn't enjoy it, you broke the Sabbath. I mean, is this, uh, I mean, I imagine uh, I'll tell my kids sometimes that they have to eat their green beans. Would it be cruel to say, now you have to enjoy them too? Um, isn't that kind of hard? God would actually say, um, you know what, you really, you have to enjoy the day. But isn't this fit though? I mean, what God wants is written on the heart, not just we're keeping a list and we're gritting our teeth. And Paul would talk about this, the 10th commandment, the hardest one to keep. Because it starts out, do not desire. Don't even want to do anything wrong. And Paul says in Romans, when I saw that commandment, that was the end of me. Don't even want to do something wrong. So again, um, if the list is a list we put on a wall and we go through, and let's see, it's Thursday, so I kept this, didn't break that one, and, and we're, we're imagining it that way, that is not at all what God has in mind. He wants that written on the heart. And so Jesus would summarize the law this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and the most important commandment. The second most important commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. All law comes down to these two great laws. Now, did Jesus make that up? That's right from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6.5, love the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 19, love others as you love yourself. I mean, it's it's... Right there in the Old Testament, even things like in Exodus 23, if you happen to see your enemy's cow or donkey running loose, take it back to him. If his donkey has fallen under its load, help him get the donkey to its feet again. Don't just walk off. So we see these things in the Old Testament, but the problem is when the people are so steeped in rebellion, God's continually having to put out fires, having to speak loudly, and we kind of miss uh, the little nuggets like this. So I think ultimately, what is... What do we want to say about the law? Last two verses here in Galatians. Freedom is what we have. Christ has set us free. Stand then as free people and do not allow yourselves to become slaves again. Now, how do you keep the law and be free at the same time? Um, again, a, a parent-child analogy might be helpful. Um, I might tell my children all kinds of things, like um, our six-year-old, don't run with a pencil. He's doing that all the time. Um, please don't hit your classmates. Um, Brush your teeth. And uh, there are rules, there are rewards for obeying and penalties for disobeying. I mean, you just have to, uh, you have to do those kinds of things. But, um, I mean, what do I really want? When he goes away to college, for example, and he calls home, maybe he's 19, 20 years old, uh, would I be happy if he said, you know what, Dad, I didn't hit anyone today, I didn't run with a pencil? Um, is that what I want? Him memorizing that list of rules as a child, and no, what you really want as a parent is that eventually your children grow up and they agree with you. You know what? 
really makes sense to brush my teeth. I understand why. And so it's done out of the highest sense of freedom, not because dad's going to come, you know, drive to college and beat him up for something if he doesn't brush his teeth. So we're free when we agree with God and when it makes sense. And what we do is we do what we want to do, not because we're going against the grain, but because we've just come into agreement with God that what he asks, it makes perfect sense. A few verses later on in Galatians, as for you, my friends, you are called to be free, but do not let this freedom become an excuse for letting your physical desires control you. Instead, let love make you serve one another. For the whole law is summed up in one commandment, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And if you love your neighbor as you love yourself, um, which of the commandments are you breaking? Um, you're not. So, so the rules were meant to bring us to a great ideal. And I think the story of Jesus interacting with his people, it reveals one thing. Uh, in addition, it's very important. And that is, if our relationship with God is purely to keep the right list, and actually we don't have a relationship with God, but we're keeping the right list, um, it can actually make us the most hardened, judgmental, condemnatory people on the planet, um, as these people were that Jesus uh, encountered. Um, it is all about intimacy, relationship with God, keeping the list devoid of that, turns us into the worst possible people you can imagine. And as evidenced by these people who crucified Jesus, and then they came by to break legs so that he would die faster so that they could make it home to keep the Sabbath. So it's not that the list is wrong, but we have to keep the list for the right reason. So let's pray as we close. Father, thank you so much for just for coming and re revealing these incredible things to us. Please help us. Each of us realize that um, uh, we certainly are not like you in many ways. We are spiritually poor, but help us to come closer and closer to you. Help us to come into agreement with you about the things that you've asked, that it makes sense, and uh, that we do these things out of the highest sense of freedom. Thank you again for your Holy Spirit who continually brings these things closer to us. In your name we pray. Amen.